Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 41st episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie. Joined, as always, with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, do you like my shirt? Yeah, it looks real good. Where'd it's, you get this it? Is em- this is embroidering right here. This isn't this isn't flimsy uh, stickers. This is this is stitched on. Wow. I can tell my son loves it. He's like, why doesn't this come off? He just pulls at it the whole time. And I'm like, no, no, this is this is nice, Austin. We got to keep this nice. For all, for, for all of our non-YouTube audience, Roger has a fancy new M&R shirt on. A man yeah. shirt. In the background, over the past month, we've been wor- working on rolling out a website where people can directly support us instead of having to go through Patreon. I'm hoping to have that wrapped up by the time that this episode goes up, and then we could have uh, the website in the description. And if not, at the very least, you can go to www.mnrcast.com, and the, and the shop is up if you want to go buy a t-shirt or a mug. Uh, that's live. It's just as far as like actually subscribing to like uh, MNR University um, and then uploading all that back content has just been taking a little while, but uh, in the final stages of that. Awesome. Couldn't have put it any better myself, Michael. <laughs> I can tell your enthusiasm shines through. I don't. I guess I don't really know what to say about it. I know you've been working really hard on it, and I think it looks what I've seen has looked very good, and I'm really excited for it to be live. I, I guess I didn't really say that the first time, but yeah, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Always nice to have your support. Um. So I guess we do have a main topic of overrated cards. And if you don't want to talk about this now, it's fine. I can take this out. But uh, did you want to address the Hayden Dale, Matt Rogers situation? Because I know that's been the hot topic of this week. And we normally don't touch on like these buzzy, newsy kind of stories. But uh, this one seems, I think, kind of important to touch base on. Yeah, I, I thought about putting out a tweet on it for a while, but I didn't think I could really fit the, everything I wanted to say on it in one tweet. And that kind of just like left me and a pause of I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything, which probably isn't great. But I'd I, I kind of would usually rather say nothing than say something I don't mean or say something that's not how I really feel about it. But sure, I guess what what are your thoughts first before I dive into it? Um, so I messaged Hayden, and I just wanted to make sure that like he appealed the judge ruling because I think we and I are going to be on the same page here, where the judge ruling seems very strange. Um, and not at all what we were expecting or, or have been used to in our experience in organized play. Um, but he did, and it apparently came down from Josh Scott himself, you know, friend of the cast who's been on before. So I imagine if anybody's going to get a technical ruling in this weird situation, right, it's going to be him. And if not, it is by de facto, right, considering he's the guy who, you know, makes the rules. So it's pretty hard for him to not give a right decision. But I still think that the whole situation was um, just a circum- matter of unfortunate circumstances, more than malicious intent on anybody's in part, whether that be the judges or Matt Rogers or Hayden's or anything like that. But I'm sure you're going to agree with what I'm saying here, but I'll like you, let you take it from here. Yeah. So real quick to explain the situation. This was round 10, I think, the third round of day two. It was Hayden Dale versus Matt Rogers on camera. Um Matt has a channel like frigid in play with one counter on it and casts an art of four choosing plus one plus one and banish draw two. Hayden then responds by pitching a blue to cast. I think it's polar blast from arsenal. It might be cold snap one or the other from arsenal. Um, 
draws his card for the Polar Blast, puts the his resource counter on two, fires a Waning Moon for three without pitching a second card. So basically not paying the extra tax on Channel Life Frigid on either the Cold Snap or the Waning Moon activation. Uh, Matt Rogers thinks for a minute, pitches a blue to AB3, and then uh, resolves Art of War by just drawing two cards without banishing a card for the cost. So um, I think then... I don't think anyone realized that something wrong had happened at that point. And then Matt Rogers then casts it. Thanks for a little while, casts a terrace under. And then before he does anything else after that, that's when uh, the game gets paused. I don't know who caught it, how it got caught. I know the commentators were talking about it and they, they immediately realized that Hayden hadn't paid for the channel and did not realize Matt didn't banish for the art of war till later, but um, that's when the game gets paused. And the ruling ultimately was, um, because so much had happened and both players had like basically so many things had happened in the game that made rewinding very difficult because both players had drawn a card. They would have to rewind them drawing the card. Um, Decisions would be different based on knowing what you draw off art of war and cold snap and how, how you would arcane barrier the waiting moon. And then I don't know, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of like context that, makes that turn really complicated and not not a simple rewind like oh i pitched one x or one too few resources to do my thing that would just be damage it's just like so many things happen that they decided that the ruling would be don't rewind any of the game state just let the current game state exist as it is and give both players an ip2 penalty which uh is a lot worse for Icelander than it is for Starbo, especially considering I think life totals were like six to thirty-five at this point in time. Yeah, uh, Hayden had a lot more than six life at this point. And I said Starbo, I meant uh, old time. Yeah, tomato, tomato. Hayden had a lot more, or a lot more than six life at this point. I think he had like fifteen to twenty or something. But oh, okay. it was it had been a really long game where they were definitely worried about going to time. Also, is relevant because. I believe Matt Rogers had cast two remembrances on Warhorn and had activated Warhorn three times and Hayden had just remembrance back in three frost Texas. <laughs> so, so it was a very, a very long game. Both players were pres- like trying to play fast because draws are much worse than a loss. And the game was very likely to end in a draw at this point when Hayden was at 20 something, Matt Rogers was at like 30 something. And if they didn't play at a very quick pace, it would probably end up in a draw, but that ruling kind of, I, I know I would be pretty frustrated if that was the it definitely leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. So I guess basically what I think I want to say about this is that right now it seems like the community has been really hostile towards Matt Rogers. And I think that that shouldn't be the case. Like ultimately if someone is cheating in flesh and blood, that's really up to the judges to find Everyone saw the same thing. Everyone got the same story. Matt Rogers didn't banish for Art of War on camera and drew the two cards. He wasn't like, it's not cheating to forget something. It is cheating to Yeah, cheating implies a a specific intent. Yeah, Yeah. cheating means you're intending to do that. And so I think it is very clear that Matt Rogers was not intending to cheat there and to gain an advantage. He was just trying to play the game quickly. And I, I think if someone is trying to cheat that's really up to the judges to figure out the judges are the ones that are going to take the players aside talk to them ask about what happened ask about what they were thinking about and really like watch the players and track the players to see that kind of thing and so i really don't think 
the community coming after Matt Rogers for cheating is okay because he, he wasn't cheating. That's like not what happened. It was a mistake that was made because players were playing faster. And there's like this expectation on the top players to play perfectly, but everyone makes mistakes. And like you saw, Hayden also made a mistake of not playing for the channel like frigid tax. And, and he had make, made mistakes earlier in that point in the game, right? And I think that's also why the penalty was as bad as it was, since it was a stacking penalty on him. Yeah, I, I don't remember what his first game rules violation was, but he also he had uh, definitely done something illegal earlier in the game. And that's, yeah, you're right. That's why he got an IP2 for not paying for the channel tax on the second, the second yeah. uh, instance of a game rule violation. So... Anyway, I guess I'm kind of saying the same thing over and over again, but I think leave it, leave it to the judges to determine when something is cheating. And I I think it's pretty, it's pretty negative to just like attack someone who has been like, and I think a pretty well-respected member of the community for a long time over a mistake they made in a game. And if you're upset about the ruling, that's like something that you should handle by talking to the judges or like, putting like talk, trying to figure out like what a better solution would be. And that's, that's something that like, if you want to be part of that, then maybe look into joining the judge community and try to figure out how to resolve those things. Cause like Josh Scott is the top head judge guy and he makes like, there was, there was a lot of debate between the judges about what the ultimate ruling should be. And that's why there was such a long pause. If you watch the stream, it was paused for like probably 10 minutes on that, figuring out what to do there. And that was the judges discussing amongst themselves what, how to handle it and then communicating that with the players. So it's not easy being a judge and being in that spot and being like, well, 18 different things happened. Both players drew extra cards, both players violated the game's, game rules. And there isn't like an obvious easy fix to it. You can say like, you just have Matt Rogers banished now, but that doesn't, like if, if he banishes now, then now he already cast the terrace under. Are you rewinding the terrace under and then rewinding to the point where the art of war resolved? And then that's kind of like, yeah, I get it. I think <laughs> we don't have to belabor on this too much longer. You're starting to struggle here, buddy, yeah. but yeah, I get it. Um, and I think this is really all I wanted to get across anyways. It was just that, you know, Matt Rogers, um, at this point in time, there is not an overwhelming amount of evidence as far as the community is concerned that he's uh, a malicious actor in the game of Flesh and Blood. Um, I think somebody once infamously said, you know, Flesh and Blood is hard and then quoted that quote <laughs> multiple times now. And that's true for everybody. Um, and believe it or not, even sometimes Michael makes mistakes and messes up game rules, not as often as most other people, but I've seen it happen. I just, I'm just, like I said, I just wanted to address that in the first little opening segment of the podcast, just to um, not necessarily like offer our support or anything like that, but at least have, hopefully have some sway over the discourse and push it in a more positive direction. So that's what I was hoping to accomplish. And hopefully that is what we accomplish by doing that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so ready for the main topic of overrated cards that I'm sure will also make everybody very frustrated at the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm I'm ready. So okay. we did we did underrated cards last week. Talked about some of the cards that are better than people give them credit for. Now we're doing the flip, talking about some cards that are worse than people really give them credit for. Okay, we'll start off with the easy one. This is one. This is spoilers. I knew this was on both of our lists. Confirmed. We just talked about it actually, as far as the Matt Rogers and Hayden Dale. Uh, match was concerned but remembrance 
Yeah. Do you want to do you want to go on a on a little spiel about remembrance because you hate this card way more than I do. I don't know if I hate it way more than you do, but I, I am pretty low on the card. Remembrance is a card that it is a yellow that does not block and does and you spend a card to get zero points of value. And the idea behind playing this card is by shuffling three more cards from your discard, three actions from your discard pile into your deck, you will make up enough value to warrant the inclusion of a card that literally did zero points of value when you played it. In most cases, you are not going to get enough value out of this card for it to be worth it because you shuffle in like, even if you shuffle in three cards that are worth one full point of value more than the next best card in your deck or something, or the next best card you could include in the slot that you played Remembrance, then you're getting three points of value out of your Remembrance, which is not, not a, that's like not a rate that's particularly good. And this card is also a yellow that can't block. So you are, there's a lot of like cost to having this card in your deck. And on top of that, it's a yellow that doesn't block and you can't play it until you have these three cards that you want to shuffle into your deck, into your discard pile. So like, on sheer value, it looks very bad. So I guess the next axis you look at it is how is it against fatigue? Because if you're worried that you're going to get fatigued and run out of cards in your deck, Remembrance is something you can do to add these cards that help you beat fatigue back into your deck, basically. And I guess, in my opinion, usually the ways to beat fatigue are by like, pitch stacking something really strong and pitch stacking these big powerful turns that are going to present reasonably more damage than they can block and when you play remembrance you shuffle your deck and your pitch stack is all ruined <laughs> so on top of like doing nothing you're also shuffling and ruining the nice pitch stack that you set up so i think those are my biggest qualms with the card the reason i don't think it's very good i think that and the oldheim deck that is hard fatigue and shuffling warhorn back into their deck i think it makes sense to include in the deck because you can only play one warhorn and the warhorn is the linchpin of beating certain decks like if you're trying to beat dash this pistol planning you you kind of have to warhorn them multiple times if you're trying to fatigue an icelander you really have to kill her frost axes or she's gonna just combo kill you and you'll die and there's not really anything you can do about it except kill those things so like if that's your game plan and you're trying to beat these combo setup decks by fatiguing, then remembrancing a Warhorn back at that point, I guess, makes sense. But I just, I think like most decks that include remembrance probably should just have some other card that's reasonably valuable in that slot instead. Yeah. So I guess like on principle, right? So you're going plus three cards in deck when you cast this card. You go plus two because you spend a card to put three cards in. So you're going plus two. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so just imagine that you're just attacking with some big raw damage attack and your opponent spends two cards to block it. You've effectively accomplished the same thing as far as like card value is concerned, I guess, because you're going up cards in deck because they're spending multiple cards to try to cover up and answer your one card. Um, so that's kind of like what you were saying as far as like, just presenting actual threats or things to do in the game is going to be more powerful on average for playing the remembrance and um icelander can only present enough damage if she sets up this frost hex combo 
And it's really hard for her to pitch stack anything else or do anything else super powerful in a turn cycle other than this frost tax combo. Um, so from that perspective, I can sort of see it. But on the other, other hand, there's still cards you can look to that kind of start accomplishing the same effect. Um but through other means, but maybe might have more utility, like maybe cards like Arctic Incarceration or um, Eisenhower Weathervane, where they're going to be ice cards that block and are castable um, or, or do more things overall than just be these very specific instances of like shuffling back in these frost axes. Yeah, that that makes sense. I, I do agree with that. I think like with the Icelander example, if you're trying to beat fatigue as Icelander, I don't think these other cards that give more frostbites really solve that because if your issue is they're killing your frost hexes, then like giving them extra frostbites isn't going to fix the issue of your ice eternals not doing enough damage because your ice eternals not doing enough damage because they killed the frost hex that was going to make them take six more damage or whatever from the ice eternal. So I, I guess I think if you're playing Icelander and you know every old time you play is going to be on hard fatigue with Warhorn and Remembrance to shuffle back in their Warhorns, and they're not going to try to kill you, and they're going to give you infinite time and make the game just about can you deal 60 damage to me through my defensive hands throughout the course over the course of the game because they're going to gain 18 life or whatever off their game threes. Then I think one copy of Remembrance at that point, just literally to get back your Frost Texas, seems like okay, but... If you put Remembrance in your deck and then it's just like an old time that's just trying to hit you, then you're you're putting this tool in your deck that's so weak into that strategy. And that's a very reasonable thing for old times to do. At Indianapolis, I think there were were there four or five old times in the top eight, five? I think four of them were just hitting you, and one was actually like the hard fatigue version on Charles Dunn's deck. Well, Charles Dunn playing his deck. So and four of the five times you play against old time, you don't want the remembrance in that scenario. And I know that's like small, small sample size and stuff. And like maybe, and like I said, in a world where every old time is this hard fatigue old time, I think remembrance is not the worst inclusion though. I'd probably still look at other options to beat it, but it does serve the, it does successfully like fulfill the purpose there of like shuffling back in frost taxes. And if you have enough time to just keep playing out your frost taxes, then sure. But Yeah. I'm rambling. I also have seen Remembrance in a lot of other decks. I've seen, you, you mentioned Dorinthia. I've seen Dromai's include it. I've seen Lexi's include it. And it dilutes your turns early game pretty badly when you draw Remembrance instead of just like a red attack or a blue card or a card that blocks. And like, yeah, especially if your deck is like super proactive, it's a very bad to be putting a card like Remembrance in. In this might be a theme of my overrated cards as far as like what proactive decks are concerned. But um, yeah, I think we've explored Remembrance enough from here. Unless you want to put on any tight little little bows on the final of Remembrance. Yeah, last thing is Flesh and Blood is not a game where like most decks are looking to hard fatigue. Most very few games are actually going to the point of hard fatigue. And even in some of the games that are going to that point, remembrance is not good because if they're hitting you and you're having to block and that's why you're getting fatigued, then suddenly when you draw your remembrance and you have to block with two cards, then you have a remembrance instead of another card, then you're just you're just like not presenting damage, not doing something threatening. So they're just gonna force you to block with more cards in the future. So like 
the remembrance isn't good if you're blocking. It's basically only good against these passive fatigue decks, these decks that are looking to fatigue you without attacking. They're just trying to block you out and gain life yep. and block you out and gain life. Definitely agree. So that's it. If that if that's a big part of the format, remembrance is fine. But until we get to that point, probably shouldn't be playing remembrance. Well, what's next on your list then, Michael? All right, this one is uh, <laughs> this card was talked about a lot when it was came out, and I think it's just like a pretty mediocre card. I very happily cut it for my Icelander deck very early in testing. It's uh, Oasis Respites. That almost made my list. So, at its ceiling, this card you spend one resource, and it essentially gains you five life because it gains you the one and prevents four damage. So, one resource doesn't cost an action point, five life. That's a great rate. That's like the zero for fours that don't cost an action point. Zero fours with go again. That's like, it's like the same rate as those. It's the same rate as like sink below and stuff where you're spending, you're getting a zero for four plus spending one extra resource for one extra point of value, which is strong. But the problem is it's so hard to spend three resources on your opponent's turn. So when you pitch a blue to play your Oasis Respite, what are you doing with the other two resources? And even in the decks that can pretty effectively spend the other two resources, like Oldheim can crown plus Rampart and then Oasis Respite, and that's pretty good. But those decks, like, it's a red card that doesn't block by itself. So if you draw it in a hand without enough blues, then it's just a complete dead card. And if you draw it in a situation where you can't spend your other resources, let's say you don't have a card in Arsenal for Crown of Seeds, then now it's suddenly just a really bad rate again. <laughs> I I agree. Like I said, it almost made my list. And I think people bring it in more often than they should. Um, I think it's fine to bring in against decks that you know are going to be presenting consistent arcane damage. Basically, what would happen then is like against the Rune Blades, you're like, well, what are you spending these resources on? Well, against like Viscera, it's pretty easy to arcane barrier to Rune Chance and then Oasis Respite, the Rosetta Thorn, you know, cleans up the prevents all four of that damage. And against a deck like Icelander, I actually think it's like not the best. I think people think overrated a little bit in that matchup. It's fine. It's just so rare that you're going to get that full four damage mitigation on your turn if you're casting that card because so many of Icelander's effects are like centered around three damage, like two to three damage Mm -hmm. um, on your turn if that's what you're looking to do. Like if you're just looking to cast like a Command and Conquer and then if they go to do like a Waning Moon play, you spend your floating resource to Oasis Respite, their Waning Moon or whatever. Like it's not really where you want to be. And as far as like covering up something like Aether Ice Vein. I was playing so much Lexi, I was thinking of Chilling Ice Vein, but <laughs> Aether Ice Vein. Um, it's fine. Like you can AB1 and then spend the rest of it for the Oasis Respite to cover up the five breakpoint, but then you still have a floating resource and you're still right back to like you were saying, being inefficient. So I think it has its spots of being okay against Icelander, but like I still think it more particularly shines when you know your opponent's like going to be presenting like consistent sporadic arcane damage that you know you're going to be able to like arcane barrier. So, yeah, and even once Viscerai loses Rosetta Thorn, like I don't even know if I want to play it there anymore. Yeah, and I guess one other thing is if you're not behind in life, you're getting a pretty mediocre card. It's a very inflexible card that costs one resource to get four and doesn't spend an action point. That's like a leg tap without any like a leg tap that you can't block with and you have to play is a pretty bad card. And 
So against Icelander, you're not you're not going to be behind that often to gain your extra life off of it because Icelander just starts lower than you, and if you're ever behind, then you're probably in pretty bad shape to storm shred as lethal. And like while playing in like ninety percent of the games that you win with Icelander, you can you're like in a spot where you can afford to play around Oasis Respite, and so the, the the ideal spot to cast it against Icelander is when they pop their Storm Shredders and they go for lethal and then you Oasis Respite them and live. But like, that just doesn't come up very often. Most of the time when, like, most of the time when Icelander kills you, she can afford to play around Oasis Respite. And in the games that are so close that she cannot, a lot of the time you would fall behind in those games to drawing Oasis Respite before that final turn rather than drawing it on exactly the right turn and having it for the perfect moment where the game was close enough that it was the difference maker while also not causing you to far, fall behind earlier in the game. Yeah. And then the last reason why I took it off my list too was because I think it's, I don't like playing a lot of copies of it in Icelander. Normally I'm in like one-ish copy, one to two. Uh, I played three, but I think that's just too many. And the reason why I think one or two is fine is because um, there's just so many effects in Icelander, like blue ice bolts or effects like where you'll be spending two resources on your opponent's turn. And then assuming that you can get the full value out of it, using that last resource to play an Oasis Respite is fine. Um, And then you just need things to spend your tune to counter on in that deck. Like it's actually pretty hard for Icelander to find spots to like effectively use her tunic. And Oasis Respite's like a pretty good tunic you know outlet so like that's why i don't like a lot of it but as far as like the first copy especially against decks that are like uh like i said against viscerai or um against decks like bravo where they're spending like you know there's going to be a lot of really consistent damage that's going to be hard to block like i think it's fine there it's not amazing at the same time but i think it just kind of is what it is as far as that card's concerned if you're if you're playing an ice bolt from arsenal and casting oasis then you're spending <laughs> three cards for roughly eight points of value to frostbite, which is still not, not a great rate. So I would. Sure. I generally look, if I've got an ice bolt in arsenal, I'm probably trying to use my tunic to win even with it. Since that's also still not a great rate. You're spending two, two cards, cards for six and you're giving them a frostbite. So it's fine. It's not great, mm. but. Sure. Ready for my first card? Which, oh, your first was Robert. So what's your next card? Sure. Or my first non-share card, although this card might also be shared on our lists, uh, Command and Conquer. Oh yeah, that's my next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the hundred dollar overrated card. It's like fine a lot of the time. Like when you're just casting it normally, it's usually pretty easy. If your opponent wants to keep their arsenal, they should have a lot of cards that can just like block it or have some kind of equipment that they can use in conjunction and. It, there's going to be a lot of spots where you cast this card or have this card and your opponent doesn't have an arsenal. And then you just have a uh, two cost six thing. And it, like, it's not really doing anything amazing at that point. I would say, honestly, the most annoying part of its text isn't the arsenal destruction. It's uh, that defense reactions can't be played to its chain link. And that's why, you know, the decks that have been playing command and conquer the most to the most success have been doing like pitch a blue, um play command and conquer tunic resource go to two more pummel it and that's one of the most powerful plays in like all of flesh and blood because no matter what the pummel is going to be uh getting that card out of your opponent's hand and 
even if they don't have an arsenal. And if they do have an arsenal, you're getting that arsenal unless they're playing like Crown of Seeds or, or Crown of Providence. So um, I guess, but speaking of Crown of Providence, it does like really make Command and Conquer's like value overall in the meta go down because your first Command and Conquer is basically going to be blanked at that point because they just are going to be able to Crown of Providence away. Yeah, or you might even just have your... Your first Command and Conquer, they might just have two cards they want to block. So they might just want to block for six on the first Command and Conquer. Then the second one, they crown a province. And the third time you draw it, maybe they just don't have an arsenal because I don't know what percentage of the game turns your opponent won't have an arsenal, but it's reasonably more than zero. So this destroying an arsenal is, it's it's a good effect. It's a pretty threatening on hit. Like a full card of value is a very powerful on hit. Like look at Snatch, a full card of value is very good. But you're not always threatening that. And then Crown of Providence existing also. That card's in most decks. Most decks have Crown of Providence. So <laughs> yeah, very hard to command and conquer people without them Crown of Providencing it away. And additionally, spending two cards in your action point for six points of value, that's, that's below rate. So if you're not, if this on hit isn't reasonably disrupting them, then you're you're getting a below rate attack with command and conquer if you can't spend that one other resource to do something productive. Like if you look at like Katsu, where you can play, attack with a Kadachi and then command and conquer, you're getting your two cards for seven with this on hit, and that makes it reasonably better. But most decks don't have a one cost go again they can do with their one extra resource when they pitch a blue for command and conquer. So most cards are just playing paying two cards in their action point for six points of damage, which bad deal. Yeah. Normally like like what I like to do with my command and conquerors if I'm looking to play these kinds of effects. So it's like come to fight or um, I think, but even better than that is the one per three uh, ice quake uh, because then you're going uh, three card nine, but threatening a frostbite and a card, which is like, I think a pretty good rate at that point. So then obviously you'd want to set your deck up where you could have more cards that cost two and then, you kind of have to start building your deck around, you know, this whole design philosophy of it. But I think there are rewards to it overall, but even then it's just not the most efficient thing you can be doing on a turn cycle still. Yeah. And the places that I saw command and conquer being the strongest is when you can both pump it up. So it's harder to block that six damage. That six damage breakpoint is pretty easily hit by two, three blocks, but things like, in old chain, sometimes you would go shadow puppetry into command and conquer for seven into Rosetta Thorn. And that was a three card 11 that also had that seven damage breakpoint that sometimes hit it, got, got an extra card if they had an arsenal. And then if you look at Briar, sometimes you go like Bramble Spark, Bramble Spark, fusing this red or blue earth card. And you pitch the blue earth card to command and conquer and then attack with Rosetta Thorn. And that's like a four card, like 15 or something plus an on hit, which is more than that. It's just so. If you can both pump up the command and conquer and use the extra resource, then that's 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 when command and conquer looks really powerful. So or lunging press it. Yeah, I don't know about that one because <laughs> it then it's a three card seven, and if you're killing their arsenal, that's like if you're killing your arsenal, then it's like a two card seven, which is raging onslaught. So mm-hmm. powerful. Yeah. <laughs> if you could spend the, spend the one resource and lunging press, sure. Fair enough. Okay. I'm glad we both feel the same about Command and Conquer, though. The the last thing I'll say about it is it has a little bit of an identity crisis, I think, because against the aggro decks, you want to be disrupting them, which is great. So you play Command and Conquer to disrupt them, but all the aggro decks except the ninjas play Crown of Providence, so it's bad there. And then 
against the control decks, you want to turn off their defense reactions. But most control decks are slower decks. Don't mind just blocking with two, three blocks. They usually have a lot of three blocks. They just set two, three blocks in front of it. They're like, okay, that's fine. Or so, they're old Hyman. They just have crown of seeds and they're like, that's whatever. also fine. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it, it really shines the most against setup decks, decks that have, that really want to play five card hands and also have defense reactions to get there and care a lot about their arsenal. But the only real setup deck that's kind of viable right now is Icelander, who's not really setting up that much into most decks, and her arsenal is full of blue cards that she can just cast in response to the Command of Conqueror. So yeah, it's 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 just it's pretty good. Against, it's pretty good against Bolton. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really good against Bolton. It's probably solid against Kano too. But again, decks that aren't very common right now. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so. you're up next, buddy. All right, my next card is the card that you mentioned short a little bit ago that's actually extremely strong with Creative Conquer, but on its own, I think this card is extremely overrated. It's uh, Pummel. So <laughs> the card is very powerful. So you spend two resources and a card to get four points of value and a card back from them if the on-hit goes through. And since it's an attack reaction, the on-hit is usually going to go through. So Pummel is a very powerful card. And that's not why it's on my overrated list because, or that's like, I think there's no questioning how powerful the card is by itself. Two two resources for four damage in a card, or two resources in a card for four damage in a card is like roughly two points above rate because if you're trading a card for card, you're spending two resources for four damage and usually you look to spend, like usually three resources is worth about three points. So two resources for four, about two points over rate. Card's very, very strong. But the problem is, the context in which you can use it. When you combine it with two costs using a tunic counter, then you're getting super efficient, like three card tens that get a card back and stuff like that. But if you just attack with like a red glacial footsteps and then spend two more cards to pummel, suddenly you're turning two cards into a card in four damage, which is no longer like, like that's slightly above rate, but that's like about what you're looking for from constructed level cards is to be like, a card should be worth about four points of value and constructed for your deck to be pretty good. Maybe like somewhere between three and four. So it's like much less above rate when you aren't able to utilize your last resource or utilize the resources super efficiently. And then the other thing is in order for Pummel to be a good card, you have to keep, in the case of like CNC Pummel with a tunic counter, you need to keep a three card hand, which isn't too big of an ask, but to Pummel anything without a tunic counter, you have to keep a four card hand. And a lot of the time you have to keep a five card hand. If your thing that you're trying to pummel is expensive and that's pretty hard to do. And especially if you're like playing more than the three red pummels or too many pummels, it can be very hard to keep hands that can play a pummel and still be able to block effectively. Sure. Go ahead. And then uh, pummel also blocks for two. So the times that it's not good, it's pretty bad. You're just blocking for two with it if you don't have a window to attack with it or you're casting it on your Anathos or something. And that's not great. I think I will agree with you that it's overrated in any hero that is not a guardian. And that's because pummeling any crush effect is very good. Um, normally, like, uh, like the red pummel in and of itself is threatening the crush effect of dealing four more damage. So if you attack with like a nine power thing somehow your opponent blocks for nine you pummel over the top of like a spinal crush and you pummel over the top of it 
their their spinal crushed. Like the crush effect is there that's active. Um, the, the spinal crush effect probably doesn't matter if they blocked for nine and it might. The card. it might. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, still, I guess like sometimes we've seen decks like um, pummel lander, where like they're trying to pummel like things. Uh, the f- I the wolf card, frostfang, frostfang. Thank you. Um, like, but that's it. Like, if all you're doing is just like you have like six cards, you're happy to pummel. It's not really where you be you want to be. And like, if you and the other thing is like you said, like oh, you're just pummeling Anathos. But like in the end game, like if you're at like four life and they attack you with Anathos, but they still have two other cards, like what what are you doing? Are you just blocking for four? Or are you blocking for six? Or are you yeah. blocking for, for the full 10? It's like, it can put you some really bad spots um, like when you can actually pummel your weapon. But the other problem is then when you're not a guardian, you can't pummel your weapon like the vast majority <laughs> of the time. Like yeah, you can't, I, like people are like, oh, you should put like pummel in like Dorinthia. And I'm like, can't what? Your what? Yeah, I, I shouldn't have given pummel Anathos too much crap. If you pitch two, three costs, it's actually just a three card Ted and you can also make a surge before you do that. So it's actually like, fine yeah like that's why i'm like sure like if, as long as you're not a guardian yeah sure don't play i don't think you should be playing pummel if you're not a guardian but like it's in, i think it's like actively very good in pummel so or i guess pummel is actively very good in guardian decks so how often are you playing the yellow pummels um i think i almost never i don't think yellow pummels see a lot of play overall it's usually like they'll play the three reds and then maybe like one or two blues but like it's a blue at that point. Uh, the problem is that, like, obviously, it doesn't turn on their Anathos or Titan's Fist or even Winter's Whale back in the day. So it's not a blue like you're like thrilled to have in your deck, but at the end of the day, it's still like a pretty good blue. Sure. Okay. That's fair. And I, I think it is contextually good in Guardians. I think I would almost always play three red pummels in most of my Guardian decks, but I think that it is a card that does get a lot more credit than it's really sure there's a lot of times where i've sat down like oh man i'm so sick of these fucking guardians like pummeling me all over the place (laughs) you know what i'm gonna build like pummel viscerai and i'm gonna like push over my sweet you know uh mauvern skies and get all my rune chants and we're gonna blow up their arsenals and it's gonna be sweet and then you play like snot arcanics and you really are like pummel two attacks and you're like oh Mm -hmm. this, this doesn't work the last thing I'll say about Pummel, um, I just can tell you're pretty ready to move on. But uh, the two cards, you're getting, you're getting your two, or you're spending two resources and a card for four damage, and presumably a card. But sometimes they just have a defense reaction to cover up your Pummel. Like if they have a sink below or a fate foreseen, then mm. now you're getting a pretty bad rate. You're spending two resources and a card for just a card from your opponent. So when when it does get blown out, it's pretty pretty mediocre. And that's sure. the last point I'll make about it. And that's part of why it's so good with Command and Conquer. And sometimes well. you'll play your Command and Conquer and then you'll have the Pummel, but they'll have the Oasis Respite. And they're like, oh no, I'm so blown <laughs> out. You know? So, you know, if you play you play the overrated cards and the overrated cards, you're you're just canceling it all out. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. What's next for you over there? Hard to find all, buddy. It's oh bad. no, I love that card. It's it's not so like it's it's good in exactly one deck and it's like okay it's like it's like worth like an extra marginal one percent on your win rate in that deck 
and like that's it and like i don't think it's playable in, in like any other deck that in the format because you're just not going to be consistently behind enough i guess for most decks uh, i was trying it in lexi for a while but even then it's just like i'd rather just have a card i could cast most of the time or block with mm-hmm. and and then you think like well kano kano's behind he's also a wizard but then you're playing a blue card that you can't flip over to your Kano ability, and you're like, "Oh, I'm going to win the game. I just have to hit any source or any, any uh, not attack action. action off of my Kano flip." And you're like, "I hard to find all." And you're like, "Oh, well, guess I'll lose then." So, <laughs> uh, I think it, like it's exploded in price. I think it's pushing like six hundred dollars now. Like collectible, sure, but like if you're out there and you're like, "Oh man." I can never win the world championship because I don't have hard to find all it's, it's like, you'll be okay. Like it is, it's, I think it's worth like 1% equity in the deck at most in Icelander. And like I said, I don't think it's playable anywhere else. So I have one gem on my, uh, underplayed cards or underrated cards. And the other gem I think is completely overrated. Yeah, I, I would agree that I of fits many more decks than Hard of Final fits in. But I, I do think it fits in the Fatigue Oldheim deck. If you're trying to play hardcore fa- passive Fatigue Oldheim, you probably want Hard of Final in your deck. Maybe. Because you're going to be behind a lot of the time and you can spend three resources defensively pretty well. So it's like... You're going to be... Uh, the, most of the time I see Fatigue Oldheim, he's just healing up fucking 35 life <laughs> you're i don't dying. know what you're talking about like, you're just like oh here's my sigil of solace sigil of solace life gain potion life gain potion i'm at 46 pitch my heart to find all yeah that's true i do think that like the best ways to beat fatigue old time are pitching pretty strong second cycle hands and if you're doing that you're usually taking a little bit of damage to like play kind of inefficiently for a cycle to like get your things to the bottom and like that is kind of how you beat the fatigue old time deck is the deck doesn't really threaten you first cycle very well. It's try it wants to just block with three cards and play a play a life gain spell most of the time. It's like, and if you just give it a four card hand, it's gonna be like, okay, I will attack you for six with my blue choke slam or something. So And I've seen it happen with Blizzard, which was like a more playable card that doesn't block, where like sometimes there'll be like a key turn at the end of the game, and they'll be like, okay activate crown of seeds. I just need any card that blocks with and then there's the draw hard to find all. It doesn't block. You, you lose. So it's like uh, there's significant, significant downside to cast, to playing it in uh, decks that are not Icelander. And I think and I, I've said this a couple times now. I think Icelander is the only deck where it is okay to play that card. So overrated. Yeah, I that that's fair. I do think you are actively losing percentage points if you don't have it in your Icelander deck. I don't, it's probably How like many? more than one. So if you replace it with like generic three block blue ice card, like winner's grasp or a third frosting, if you're down to two frosting, something like that, I think you are probably like, you're making up equity in ways that you don't see because sometimes you'd rather have a three block than a heart of final. But like, if you draw like very rarely, you'd rather have, you know, a four powered attack or something like that than heart of find all. But yeah, that's fair. You'd rather have like the actual text of the blue card that could do something, but I think that's rare, but it does happen. And it's hard to really like weigh that and like imagine all the spots where you wish Heart of Final was something else unless you've played a bunch of games with Heart of Final. I do think like on average, I think Heart of Final is better than the replacements. That's why Heart of Final is in my deck. But 
most games you probably are pitching and it's probably worth one point of life and assuming there was no opportunity cost where like even if you had like a blue frosting you would still just pitch pitch it then like that's just plus one over the blue frosting but in the spots where there is an opportunity cost that you wish the it was a blue frosting or a blue winter's grass that did something else and like it's hard to really gauge how much worse the heart is than those cards in those spots and how often those spots come up so yeah so like i said like my my guess shot in the dark difference in equity is like one percent so I, I don't know yeah that that's that's probably about i think you're probably taking like one percent off your win rate across you might be able to talk me up to like 1.5 to two might be pushing it you know i'll meet you somewhere between that one to two percent range in equity yeah card's good at isolator though it's, it's good <laughs> whole one increase your win rate by one percent that's pretty good Get you're, your you're over there saying like oh yeah pubble's overrated it's only amazing in guardians and i'm like yeah heart of finals overrated it's only good in like one very specific wizard deck and you're like no no it's amazing it's like okay. yeah I, <laughs> yeah but it's my favorite deck so it's a card that makes my favorite deck better so it's, it's great it's great yeah and the other card is the card you hate seeing cast against you on your other deck you have to put a whole Pummel? extra cyborg slot with the crown of providence because of it yeah it's a combination of two cards on my list command and conquer plus pummel that's why I'm... yeah get them out nobody should play those cards anymore they're overrated <laughs> just don't play command and conquer pummel anymore says michael hamilton oh we found, a, we found one cyborg slot that answers it so that's fine yeah. you have one one slot in my 80 card deck oh that's okay. that's not a really good way to look at it because like you only really have like like if you have 60 cards in your deck plus five equipment slots, you only have really have like 15 flex slots. So one of 15 slots sounds a lot worse than one of 80, but it's fine. We found an answer. You're up next, buddy. All right. My last, uh, I've got an equipment after this, but this is my last card card is uh, Glistening Steel Blade, I think is the name of the card. Sure. It's the warrior one that gives your weapon go again whenever it hits, you put a plus one counter on it. And this card kind of sucks. You spend a card and you give your weapon go again. They block you out. You, that's a whole card to give your weapon go again. That's like a card for an actual point. It's a yellow. Blocks for three at least. So like at least it blocks for three. But I found that this card is a card that I think basically every Dorinthia deck is playing. And I think it's only really good if you're setting up like a five card hand with it where you're like have twinning blade and you have pump spells and you've got all this stuff to like force it to hit multiple times. And then it's pretty good. But like if you're just like playing this card and they just block and then you twinning blade and attack again and they just block again and you don't actually hit then like that's like three cards for six that's really bad so i think saying this card's kind of bad it's kind of like saying like lumen ascension is pretty bad where it's like sure like it's like I, I think you're you're right where it's a setup card and the value that you get off of it intrinsically isn't tied to like the rate of the card because you know by itself the card is pretty mopey lumen ascension is a pretty mopey card there are a lot of cards out there that are just like pretty mopey unless like you do the thing that they want to be doing at their most powerful effect but its ceiling is like pretty close to win the game against like decks that don't block very well and maybe that's the other part of the difference in expectations here where you play a lot of decks that you know usually do block pretty well decks like old time or the ice heroes but like against Fi, like you cast this card and like they're like it's just super important to see this card in like the first few turn cycles because without it, you can't win. But if you see this card and they look at their hand full of two blocks and like their equipment that like blocks for a little bit and you play this and you pump it and you go over like and you get like two counters on it, the game's over. Like you actually outrace Fi at that point in time. 
Um, so its ceiling is like incredibly high. Um, and at worst, it's just, you know, it's just a yellow block three. So um, I do agree that like, I think people are like too high on the card overall. And I will side it out um, if I'm playing Dorinthia, probably more aggressively than a lot of other decks. But I guess when you just think about it, like in context of when you do want it against certain decks that can block well, it, you treat it like a setup card. And if your hand doesn't like have all the pieces and you don't have like an e-pod on the battlefield and like all these really punishing effects, then like just don't play it. And then against the decks that don't block very well, then like it just can win the game on the spot. So obviously if it was any better, Dorinthia would actually be a tier one deck, but I think it's in like that right in the sweet spot of like being playably good, but not stupidly so that's like warping the format around Dorinthia, which I think is a fine place for a card to be. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think maybe this kind of like maybe twinning blade should have been on my list instead of this card because sure they, they yeah. kind of go together where like they're pretty bad without each other in mm-hmm. my opinion i think twinning blades worse without this than this is without twinning blade because this plus three pump spells is usually good enough this was a blue and three pump spells and yeah twinning blade is usually better on like the turns where you're playing uh steel blade supremacy where your sword is pumped for the whole turn and you're going to be able to draw extra cards off of it so like that's what like once you have like a static buff on a weapon for a whole turn that's where like twinning blades a little bit better but like twinning blade steel blade or steel blade supremacy um is like not the best because ultimately you're just swinging the same three damage multiple times it's like pretty easy for your opponent to block Mm -hmm. yeah that's fair how do I have two cards left? I have two cards left in my list. Did I have more than did you? Have, did you have more than five cards? Oh, I had six. Okay. You go twice, then we'll do equipment. Uh, we don't have to talk a lot about what am I. It's a combination. It's little minimalism. The combination's like fine. They can unban it. It's not. It's <laughs> like there's deck building requirements. I've been on this tirade a whole bunch. It's like, it's fine. It's it's a good combination of cards. There's a lot of deck building requirements that are associated by having like the consistent need of having cards that have three power or less. Um, we didn't see it take over the meta at any point in time in an overly oppressive way uh, since it's printing. Without it, we've just seen Phi like fall off a cliff in terms of like win rate percentage and went from being like an actual tier one deck to just like maybe tier two, two and a half, because it just doesn't have access to like the consistent resources it needs in order to like function. And I think that could be an issue going forward for all aggro decks if unless they come up with like an alternative solution that maybe has more of a deck building requirement. But like at that point, I feel like you're just splitting hairs. So like little minimalism, I just it's it's fine. It's complete like people who are like, it's like the most broken interaction in flesh and blood. You get the resources, you're <laughs> like, it's- oh, and it's like it's it's not it's fine. Like you get it's a good deal. It's 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 slightly above rate. With deck yeah. building requirements. It's crazy. I agree with a lot of what you said, but I still cycles. stand by where I put it on okay. my like top 10 card list of all time where I had it at like seventh or something. Because like the card is very good. It was in both the first Pro Tour winning deck list and the second Pro Tour winning deck list. We just played some games of Ice Liner V Chain in Living Legend format. And Belittle Minimalism is so much of the power of the chain deck. It's crazy because Chain naturally has all these three power attacks that work with it because you have all these stupid blood debt things that have so little power because they're basically extra cards when you banish them off chain and they work for belittle minimalism. It's like a lot of nice upside and the card's very, very powerful, but it is definitely overrated. I think 
Yeah, the true offender was hard of like art of war, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've like, talked about this, I think, even on the podcast. But when you go belittle into art of war, that was the broken interaction. That was where belittle looked really good because you're spending all these resources. The stupid blue attack that you revealed to belittle after pitching a blue to pay for your belittle, you just get art of war it away, and you can actually use all the resources because art of war costs an extra resources. But, yeah, of all the things that Phi was doing, that like, if you like. That you also could have like weakened Phi, but not necessarily like nuked it. it. Was like Mask of the Pouncing Links that even gets around them not wanting to ban legendaries because it's such an above rate piece of equipment. Um, there's just like other things you could have done, and I think we'll have to see in the long run how metas shake out, and especially how they want to start designing ice heroes going forward, like without kind of like these resource balance like opportunities opportunities and check for aggressive decks so we'll have to see yeah we might see a period of time where lexi is the only ice deck because old time and Icelander are both getting pretty close to living legend status yeah so okay and then i've saved my most too controversial for last so my i also have a piece of equipment that will save for last which is going to be pretty controversial and uh back when we did our top 10 cards list we both put this at number one and now I think it's overrated. I, I think Sinkhole is overrated. <laughs> I'm tired of seeing it as a three of in every single deck list. A hundred percent of the time, there's no way that this like it's very good, but there's no way that it's like right to just always start like every deck list and you just go like three Sinkhole in right away. Like, like really, it's just like that that ubiquitous. You just always want to be having some copies of Sinkhole in your deck. I don't buy it. What deck would you not include three Sinkholes in? So, Except Lexi. Lexi doesn't play any, right? Right now, I'm not putting in Bolton. Really? Um, yeah. And I think I think even a deck like uh, Phi, Daniel Rutowski, he had, he had them in his deck, but like he's like, he maybe played them in like one matchup, I think, maybe two. Uh, so they were just like slots that easily could have been something else if you wanted more equity into different matchups. And the reason is like if you're doing something very specific or you're doing something very, 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 very proactive, having drawing a sink below is a very real cost. So like, for example, like in Bolton, like if you're post Lumina combo, it, this is not a light card. So it pretty very easily just kind of gets clunked up in your deck. And when you want to really be putting your foot on the gas after combo and you just draw like a sink below or two and like you you're just like, oh, I have no momentum anymore. Like, I just have to let my opponent have uh, start attacking me again. And my deck's not really amazing at doing anything else on like any given turn cycle. So I just kind of have to like play these defense reactions and hope for the best on future turn cycles. Yeah. And dr drawing sync below on a via the Vanguard turn after you combo, that was the worst feeling. You got your blue, you got your via the Vanguard, then you got two sync belows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but then, like, like Phi is just like, oh, you got your Art of War, you have your uh, brand with Cinderclaw, you have your um, uh, Blazing Blaze Head Hedgehog Blaze Headlong, um, and then you have Sink Below, and you're like, oh, okay, oops, like my hand's like nowhere near as efficient as it could be. So, I think I'm not saying that the cards like nobody should be playing Sink Belows anymore, but like. I am just starting to question its sheer ubiquity in the game of Flesh and Blood. And I think maybe some people might be, you know, opening up some more deck uh, slots overall if they just start to like 
really question St. Polo's place in their deck. I'm a big believer in like uh, the saying, like, I don't believe in like a sacred cow. Basically, uh, that just means like there's nothing that is just like a fundamental cornerstone and just gets like a never cut from any deck. Like you should always be questioning every single card and every single slot in every single list to make sure that it's like the best you can actually get it to be. And I don't know that those three slots should always be given to sink below. So I guess that's, that's why it's on my overrated list. Yeah. I, I I think I would agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I would still probably rate it as the best card that's legal in the game, but I'd probably put, I, I definitely think people leave it in their deck or don't sideboard it out often enough. And maybe there are decks that are including it and they're 80 that probably that shouldn't be. Yeah. In fact, we have a really good example of how people overrate sync below. Sometimes they put it in their arsenal and lose the game in the world's <laughs> like top eight matches. Like I think I can't think of a bet. Like I, I'm sure your opponent's very good in like, I'm not trying to like harp on them or like say anything like that. But like, I think that just speaks to just like how overrated this card really is where people are like, Ooh, it's just a zero before I can get the value out of it. I can block their wounded bulls or whatever with it, but it's like things don't always line up the way where like the sink below gets to, you know, be used in that situation. And there is always, always a deck building cost to putting that card in your list. So, um, yeah, I, I guess like just, I'm just trying to encourage people to just really be skeptical about like every single list card in their lists, even sink below. Yeah, I know one thing that surprised a lot of people when I was playing Icelander and I was talking about how to sideboard is I'm, I'm cutting sync blows into dash and like dash is a deck that attacks you most turns. At least I was before hypothermia ban. I don't actually know now, but dash is a deck that attacks you most turns. But sometimes they take an off turn where they set up an item or they just like shoot their pistol a few times. And like when you had sync blow against those hands, then like that was really bad. And then now you had the stupid red sync blow that you kind of felt like you had to arsenal and then you couldn't arsenal like another blue ice card that you'd rather arsenal. and. It definitely had spots has spots where it's like pretty bad and finding those spots and not including sync below in your deck in those spots or in your deck in general in the case of what you were talking about with bolt and that that makes a lot of sense like if sync below is causing that problem post psych post combo and you can't use it yeah like, but even like, it's a, not like a deck like viscerai like if your deck is doing like very specific ratios or things like that like uh back in like like uh that's why i played enchanting melody like people were just like yeah just play like sync belows and immovables to fix like your starvo batch up or whatever and it's just like no i don't really want to play sync below because i have very specific deck building requirements and i don't want a defense reaction so yeah yeah sonata is a big argument for not putting sync below in your deck if you're playing sonata or other cards that care so heavily about ratios and like if you look at Lexi too, she needs like ice cards, she needs blue, she needs arrows, she needs these pump arrow spells, and you don't see sync blows in Lexi because you need like 18 different other things. So yeah. Makes sense. All right. Ready to move on to equipment? Yeah, it's chew me your equipment now, buddy. I'm ready. All right. My equipment is Crown of Seeds. And I've talked about this card a whole bunch, how you're spending one resource to replace your card in arsenal with a new card and prevent one damage. Not above rate, just one card or one resource or one damage, and then you have to figure out how you're going to spend those other two resources on your opponent's turn. And it's a good card. I play it in almost all of my old time decks. I think maybe all of my old time decks, though, there's an argument to not play it. And well, it's banned in Blitz, but if, if it was legal in Blitz, you still wouldn't play it in every old time deck. Like the, the aggressive old time decks that probably would not want it. They probably want Stalagmite and uh, Crown of Providence, but it's a strong card. It 
is a big part of why these fatigue decks are able to be so powerful because they can play five card hands on defense without having a specifically defensive card in their arsenal because they can pitch any blue to crown of seeds and it's the reason why you can play cards like hard to find all in your all defense old time deck because you have crown of seeds but the card's just like on rate it's not doing anything crazy and there's been so many calls to ban this card and it's a good card it is but it's not like it's probably maybe in the top 10 equipment in the game in my opinion it's not like number one or even number two it's just like good sure yeah i don't disagree i was really nervous when you said crown of uh when you were leading off with your overrated card though because mine's crown of providence <laughs> okay god um so because similarly to sink below where it's just like i think arcanite skullcap is still a very 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 strong headpiece and there are a lot of options as far as like deck building uh decisions go and i guess always starting with just like one crown of providence three sink below is like not always what you want to be doing Uh, i guess like if you're playing crown of seeds you're not playing crown of providence so maybe that's not the best example but like i just maybe this is just me just more going on just a, a rallying cry to get back behind arcanite skullcap to some degree because i think stopping the ability to stop two on hits uh, over the course of the game um, is a very powerful effect there are a lot of classes in the game that don't have access to equipment that blocks very well and there are a lot of decks where they're very consistent and like they're playing like longer games so the one-time effect of chrono providence like the more turns you play the one turn of fixing of the crown of providence the less that matters right because if you play 10 turns it's fixed uh and you use it once it's fixed 10 or yeah 10 percent of your turns one out of 10 but if you play 100 turns and you've crowned a providence once it's fixed uh you know one percent of your turns whereas arcanite skull cap especially like against the rune blades where you're they're often having like on hit effects and you can have that ab3 when you're behind to help cover up rosetta thorn or I think it sorry, buddy. I think it's really underrated and really underexplored against Icelander, where um you will start getting into those endgame situations where you're gonna be more at a life total parity. And having that AB3 against a lot of what she's doing in the endgame, um, and having to balance life totals for that can be really tricky for her. On top of like you get the block value off of the physical attacks as well. So I think it could potentially be like a pretty at least in so far in my experience it's been a pretty good sleeper card against like icelander and i just think crown of providence is like it's very good fixing a hand but it's not necessarily like the strongest de facto headpiece in the game 100 percent of the time yeah, I think that's something that I really found in testing when you were trying uh, skull cap against me was like, if you're like a setup e deck trying to do some setup things into Icelander, then you're not always gonna be you're not always gonna be ahead in life if you're like having off turns. Like when you pl- when we looked at Viserai, he's spending turns to set up some rune chance sometimes, and then he's gonna come in with some big stuff that's produced by a rune chance. Like a lot of the time that you take your off turn to set up rune chance, you fall behind in life, and you can get your block value out of skull cap or your AB value out of skull cap. And like you were do- testing it in Bolton against me and that seemed pretty good there. Like I, 
like the matchup was still really bad, but that's just because like Bolin has fundamental flaws with playing a Sicelander where all of her cards that block are non-attack, so it stops his charge buff. And she's just very good at disrupting combo or cheap go get attacks and his hero power and stuff. So like but it, it the skull cap was definitely impressive there. And I think like what you were saying about the duration of the game mattering i don't necessarily think that means skullcap is strictly better because like skullcap still just blocking twice and providence is blocking once and filtering a card it's not like skullcap's getting like eight activations over a longer game like something like True. tunic where well, just, if like, you're using the arcane barrier you could yeah that's that's fair but if you look at something like tunic that like literally its value is proportional to how sure. long the game goes but mm. the thing is if you look at crown providence versus skullcap if if a game's going like 15 turns each and you have skullcap you will probably be able to find two spots where you're lower in life and you can stop a relevant on hit with it, which is like very powerful. That's probably like you're getting three direct life just blocking out of it and then stopping like two on hits that are each worth like one or two points of value is that's a lot of extra value off skull cap. And then if you compare that with crown of providence, it's worth two points of value. Plus at some point it's probably going to make a hand worth like one to three extra points of value with the filtering effect, or it's stopping you from getting your arsenal blown up by a command and conquer, which is worth like three to four points of value. So like, Crown of Providence is usually going to be worth somewhere between three and five value over the course of the game. And like Skullcap, if you're blocking for three and stopping two on hits, that's worth more than five points of value. So that's not even counting the arcane barrier against Rosetta Thorn or things that can deal three arcane damage. Yeah. So I guess like that's why I said my last two picks are, are controversial because by no means, I think like maybe would people heard us say overrated. We're just going to like dunk on a bunch of cards that we think are like just to like just like i think when people heard us say overrated cards people thought maybe we're just going to say these cards are actively bad i'm not saying and i don't think that's the case for anything we've said on our list it's like none of these cards are just like overrated nobody should be playing these cards ever like what like people are just mad at flesh and blood what's going on here it's more like if even if a decision is right 99% 99% of the time, if people are making that decision 100% of the time, that makes that decision overrated. Like, so I think that's just kind of what I was trying to call attention to with my last two picks, where it's just like, I think that these cards are very good and they should still see a lot of ubiquitous play in the game of Flesh and Blood. But I would still think that there are spots where they're better than the def- default expectations that maybe people have at the moment so that's why they're on my list yeah makes a lot of sense and thinking back to the Icelander mirror it's probably wrong to be playing Nolverine hood instead of skull cap in the Icelander mirror huh if you're just looking to sideboard one card maybe <laughs> that's something that would be interesting but i don't know i i do think i definitely agree with crown of providence and what you said about how like we're not saying that no one should play it. Just like if it's right to play Skullcap over Crown of Providence 15% of the time and people are doing it 0% of the time, Crown of Providence is like way overrated, right? Mm-hmm. So. And, and, and it might even be matchup specific where it's just like, uh, like you were saying, like if your opponent has like a lot of very threatening on hits and you're going to be expecting to block things that aren't necessarily 100% of the time going to be Command and Conquer, Crown of Providence really helps you cover up those breakpoints on things like Snatch or um, things like that. So something to think about. Any final thoughts, buddy? I guess I wanted to say I really appreciate everybody 
um, the support on Patreon and buying stuff from our website that some of our patrons have already done. And you guys are awesome. And we, I think without like all the community support, I probably would have gotten a little bit burnt out on the project a while ago, like getting all this extra support and people just being really encouraging and kind that I, I just, I guess it's been a while since I've really given a heartfelt thanks to everyone supporting us. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to do that. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, for sure. It's always nice to be uh, appreciated and supported by everybody out there. Uh, Michael hates hard work. So the fact that he has been even doing this <laughs> level of work for this long now is, is really, you know, I think should speak volumes to how much he cares about this project. And it's what motivates me to like want to keep, you know, making a website, uh, pushing the Discord community in new and interesting ways, staying engaged, um, and just like keep loving the game of flesh and blood. Like it's, we weren't passionate about it. We wouldn't have started the podcast, but the help. Now it's starting the sweet feedback loop where like, because of the podcast, I like flesh and blood. And because of the game of flesh and blood, I like the podcast. So like, it's a nice, it's uh, some synergy there. Mm-hmm. Not overrated at all. Just good. Just good stuff. Just a good game. Mm-hmm. Well, with that being said, everybody, the next time you're playing flesh and blood, always remember to mind your manners. Thanks for watching. Mm-hmm.